This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Will Lennart-Jones has written a book called 50 Queer Music Icons Who Changed the World. Will, welcome to Triple R. Hi. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. It's been a while. You've been based overseas for yeah, several years. that's so. right. Yeah. I've been in London for the last couple of years and travelling um, for a year before that. But yeah, back in Melbourne for a very, very quick visit. Now, you've been working in the music industry for over 20 years. I know you've been kind of a publicist, you've been a manager and kind of working in programming and, and much more, kind of working on tours and festivals and so forth. So I'm immersed in the music world, but mm-hmm. why did you decide to write 50 Queer Music Icons Who Changed the World? Um, I guess writing had always been a really big aspect of my uh, work for the past 20 years, um, although it was kind of less on a creative side. I did that at uni um, and an opportunity came up through a friend uh, to give this a crack and it just seemed to really align really nicely. She recognised, obviously, you know, my interest in music, um, things from a queer perspective and also, um, I guess, my writing skills for better or worse seem to kind of fit the slot I guess so so yeah it was a project I took on last year um amongst doing many other things and um yeah it was really rewarding to do I really enjoyed it. Was it a challenge to kind of I don't know jump tracks as it were with your writing style to go from writing media releases Mm. or information for websites or updating band bios or whatever to doing doing something more creative that needed to distill an enormous amount of information about each individual artist yeah there's a slight pressure there um I was actually speaking to um for another reason speaking to Rufus Wainwright's manager this morning and and she was like I'll send a copy over and I'm like oh god I hope I wrote something okay um yeah it is a pressure to distill somebody's career into 300 350 words is a challenge but um but um I actually really enjoyed the process I think the biggest challenge for me was more so the fact that uh like I've not really been in the position of needing to create and you can't really timetable that all the time so um some days were easier than others but um Deadlines always help, I find. <laughs> uh, sometimes, sometimes yeah. they, they terrify me. Yeah, now, me too. <laughs> as the, given that the book is entitled 50 Queer Music Icons Who Changed the World, how did you, what were your criteria for se- selecting these people? And in particular, not so much the queer music mm. icon side mm. of it, but changing the world, because that's a big call. It is a big call. I mean, there were lots of people I wanted to include. Um, it was a bit of backwards and forwards with the, I guess, uh, the the book editor as well about, um, there were many people I, I thought were great, but then on further discussion, some of them perhaps their um, impact musically was not so substantial, or perhaps they had made other changes, but... Um, uh, it just kind of did, it was it was basically kind of three criteria. They needed to kind of have an interesting creative output, have cultural influence, and hopefully have made positive change in some way to the community. Some more than others. I mean, you know, there's definitely some that are debatable there. But um, I guess um, throughout each decade, different people represented different things. So you have people like Liberace, who of course was you know hiding in plain sight, but you know obviously kind of was was still kind of an amazing character and people like you know the village people who are really kind of contentious really as as actual gay kind of um figures of of uh change but you know in in, in kind of adopting these tropes of of gay subcultures they went mainstream and it was like 
kind of quite an incredible thing if you think about it. So well, I certainly think back to the impact of like the video clip for YMCA, for yeah. example, which is so obviously queer, but at the same time, this kind of big mainstream commercial hit. It's weird, that slippage that it's can occur. It's completely bonkers. Like with the village people, you know, the, the US Navy actually gave them access to a whole naval military base to film in the Navy. And at one stage, I think they were trying to use that song for their campaign and, you know, Kind of funny looking back at it now. <laughs> now, how far back into history does uh, does your selection of uh, 50 queer music icons I go? I think we kick off with Ma Rainey, blues singer, um, who just kind of predated Bessie Smith, I think. Um, I think that, you know, uh, probably blues and, and rock, um, there's some cornerstone people there that made significant kind of uh, changes to how modern music is presented now. Certainly Ma Rainey, Little Richard, of course, is, is a massive influence on, on so many many people both within um, queer culture and outside as well um, and then we carry through right up into some quite contemporary people like Troy Sivan I think is a great musician and also a great um, you know well-rounded interesting articulate artist who also happens to be based um, in Australia you know so yeah it's quite a quite a funny little selection. And the book is illustrated by Michelle Rosenthal so yes. she's done a, an image a, a kind of Stylized, not quite cartoon image, yep. but a kind of kind of vivid, strong accompanying artwork for each of the icons you're selecting. Yep. What was the process like working with her? It was it was remote. She's based in New York, and I was writing the book in London. So um, I think that you know the the main kind of backwards and forwards really was just in terms of um, aligning some of the artist images to perhaps their most memorable period or um, a, a look that was more iconic than others. So, um, but on the whole, you know, I think you know she just got it. She does a lot of this stuff, and uh, she did it well. I feel. Now, just looking at the the list yes. of artists in here, so you're covering people. There are some names that you would expect in here. KD Lang, uh, Boyd George, uh, Yonsei from Sigur Ross, Holly Johnson from Frankie Goes to Hollywood and others. Uh, and then some more contemporary names, uh, Michael Stipe, Frank Ocean, uh, Rufus Wainwright and others. Uh, but I notice you've cheated slightly and uh, <laughs> kind of there's a section at the back of the book. You haven't been able to quite limit it to 50 because you've yes. got more music icons, including the likes of Dusty Springfield, Joseph Baker and of course uh, Melbourne's own Courtney Barnett. Yes, there are so many great people, and it, what's really funny is, um, you know, having done the book, I kind of kept waking up and remembering people that I'd either completely forgotten or have become more evident since then as well. It's really kind of quite a uh, quite a challenge to cover as many people as as we as we did in there. Um, you know, hopefully, who knows? Maybe there'll be another edition if if uh, people like the book enough. Uh, if you've just tuned in, I'm talking to Will Lanark-Jones about his book, 50 Queer Music Icons Who Changed the World. Uh, where can people pick up copies of this? I think in Melb's um, Hairs and Hyenas and Reading, Readings. Readings, what am I saying? Readings. You have been yeah. spending a lot of time in the UK. <laughs> readings uh, and, and online, I, call, uh, I think, as well. But, yeah, Hairs and Hyenas, I think, is probably the best one. Uh, so definitely get along to Hairs and Hyenas and get your hands on a copy or, yes, check out Readings if you like. Uh, it's uh, published by Hardy Grant, which means... Uh, they have a pretty good distribution network. So if you can't find it uh, in a couple of the bookshops we've named, you'll be able to jump online and order a copy as well. Will Lanark Jones's 50 Queer Music Icons Who Changed the World. It's a compact hardcover. And uh, having just got my hands on a copy this morning, thank you very much, Will. I look no forward to, uh, to absorbing <laughs> this in detail. Thank you.
The Honourable Martin Foley MP is the Minister for Creative Industries in the Labor government here in Victoria and on Sunday together with the Premier Daniel Andrews made a, a rather spectacular announcement about the redevelopment and transformation of the South Bank Arts Precinct including the creation of a brand new gallery for the NGV, NGV Contemporary. Martin, good morning. Good morning, Richard. So this has been described as a once-in-a-generation transformation. How important and how significant is it that both the NGV and also Art Centre Melbourne, as part of this announcement, will effectively get new branches, entire new buildings uh, in which to present and explore and create? I think it's quite significant, uh, not just for those institutions and the consumption of creative activity that goes on within them, but I'd also like to think it would ripple out through the Sturt Street Precinct because it's actually also about creating a greater civic cultural space that can link into Sturt Street, which, as good as it is, kind of lacks that activation aspect as a precinct rather than a fantastic collection of small, medium and big uh, players in that space. And I'd also like to think that particularly with the incubator and the projects that will be targeted around One City Road um, and the opportunities that it will ripple well beyond that precinct to all corners of the state. One of the things that intrigues me about this uh, development is that that notion of, as you say, creating more civic and open and cultural space. So it's not just about creating buildings and the institutions within them. The, that notion of creating greater access, linking Sturt Street more closely yep. to St Kilda Road and the river, opening up that space to encourage pedestrian traffic, foot traffic, and just more engagement with the area generally is quite significant. It's it's one of the core parts of why the project has taken a while. It, the easiest thing is to, well, it's not the easiest thing, but one of the easier things would be just to say, let's build some big buildings. It's what goes in, around, and ripples out from them. And the ensuring that we've had collaboration across agencies and across participants in that space which goes to the heart of what our creative state policy two years ago was all about, to make sure that the significant investment we put in these big cultural institutions ripples well beyond the walls of those institutions to different creatives wherever they might be, whilst at the same time recognising that our creative sector, particularly the visitor economy, is a major economic contributor to our our nation as well as our cultural well-being. And... Um, Getting that balance between consumption and, you know, visitation and creation is been what's driven the heart of this um, project to date. It's early days. There's still a long way to go, but uh, it's a very exciting opportunity. We're talk if we're talking about uh, the economics, how much is the Victorian government investing in this project and uh, where is the money actually coming from? Okay, so uh, stage one that we kick-started the whole project on the weekend is $208 million. Uh, the biggest slice of that is the purchase of the former CUB site, uh, which interestingly enough has a full-sized uh, replica of the State Theatre hidden away in it, which was a revelation. Uh, and that's that will be the site of uh, NGV Contemporary and Design. 
more immediately. There'll be some work that needs to be done, particularly at the Arts Centre, uh, around making sure that physically it's going to be in a position to, particularly the theatre building, uh, be positioned to um, re-engage as that civic space comes around what we would call the back of it now, but the link into a future Sturt Street entrance. And then, more importantly, design, consultation, activation, and those kind of things. So we've probably got about 18 months to two years' worth of design and initial works, and uh, at the same time, that will then guide us as to what future costs, future opportunities, and uh, future contributions will be. Now, on the financial front, before we talk in a little bit more detail about some of the the aspects of the work, uh, Heidi Victoria, the Shadow Minister for Arts and Culture, has expressed some criticism that this project will be too reliant on the the philanthropic sector. What's your response to that? Well, I'm a bit surprised, uh, frankly. Um, The alternative is what? That we pay for it totally out of um, state revenue, and if that's the case, you know, I don't want to um, be too cruel about it, but which programs in either the cultural space would we shut down or which schools would we not build or which hospitals would we not fund for that? But more importantly, uh, our philanthropic community for generations has always been at the forefront of collaboration and partnership in our cultural space. Right now, the programs that are being dealt with at the big institutional end at uh, the State Library, that's well and truly being partnered by philanthropy, all the way down to the exciting work that's going on at Collingwood Arts Precinct. Millions of dollars uh, from philanthropic supporters. A project that was started by, I would point out, uh, Ms Victoria when she was the Arts Minister. So I find it a little bit... um, uh, surprising that that line of uh, criticism has been placed at it. I'd like to think uh, we've just moved on and that was a, um, uh, a grab for the TVs because we know that the philanthropic partners are there already. A lot of work in engaging with uh, significant contributors has already uh, begun and I look forward to that landing as we get to the point of design and those kind of things. Now, speaking of design, let's talk for a moment in a little bit more detail about NGV Contemporary and Design. This has been billed as what will be the largest uh, gallery in Australia devoted to contemporary art. Uh, Why are contemporary galleries suddenly so hot uh, right now? So over the last decade, we've seen up in Brisbane, Quag Goma's Contemporary Gallery. We've seen Mona. Uh, Adelaide Contemporary just announced the winners of their architectural design competition yesterday. Why why the focus on contemporary art in the gallery sector? And I'd say not just in Australia, globally, and uh, we're seeing this insatiable desire for people, particularly younger people, to engage with contemporary art and design. And that is, uh, I think, reflecting a confidence in a 21st century modernism that says boundaries can be crossed when it comes to uh, consumption of creative activities. And as we saw in Triennial, the biggest single uh, events of um, display and presentation and visitation that the NGV has ever had, and not just in numbers, the incredible diversity of people who flocked to see that was just phenomenal. And that just helped seal the case within government that there is a huge 
linchpin of this successful precinct. The, uh, I can't explain it. I'd, be, I'd, I'd really be keen to know others' views, but it's a real and uh, growing phenomenon. It certainly is. Now, the other major kind of infrastructure development beyond, as we've established, the opening up of roadways and public space and so forth, is a new creative hub at One City Road, which is uh, where testing grounds are currently operating. Yeah. And I know there's conversations around the future of what the artists are uh, working with testing grounds will do. But that building, well, that site will become a new building described as a new campus for the Art Centre Melbourne, which amongst other things will have a permanent new home for Orchestra Victoria, uh, new galleries uh, for the Australian Performing Arts Collection to be displayed, which is fantastic because it's currently hidden away from the world. Uh, And uh, creative space for the small to medium and independent sector, which I think is a a key part of that development. It sure is. And we want to make sure that uh, the, the work that's been done at Testing Ground continues in a new space. It's as the Testing Ground crew, uh, you know, been engaged in this discussion. Their their infrastructure is portable for that very reason. So part of this will be how we're going to land the work and the opportunities that they do for the pop-ups and the innovation isn't lost to the precinct. That's one set of challenges. But then much talked about all of those things that you just um, uh, said in terms of what will be dedicated into that um, one city road space and would form one boundary of this bigger uh, 1800 hectare um, civic space that it will feed into uh, and that would include the music vault which has been beyond uh, our ideas as how successful that would be, but particularly the Performing Arts Collection. Over 700,000 pieces that sits in warehouses and vaults all around the state that um, uh, will be an opportunity to engage with. Even more importantly, I think, the idea that we've been um, fostering over the last few years, how can we use what we do with our big cultural institutions to engage more creatives. The work that ACMEX have been doing and the work that we announced today with Foundry and the partnership between the State Library in Victoria and uh, ACME to bring in some, uh, independent creative entrepreneurs to get the, both the business development side of the artistic work that they do. These are the kind of things that need to enliven that space. So it's about creation of cultural and creative content, not just consumption. Martin Foley is the Minister for Creative Industries here in Victoria. Martin, a final question for you about this redevelopment uh, of the South Bank Arts Precinct. When can we expect it all to be finished? Uh, Well, this is a decade-long project. This is stage one. Stage one has got about a two-year life to it in terms of design, initial works, consultation and opportunities. Uh, But I think it was referred to in one of the media reports as a billion-dollar decade-long project. I think that's probably pretty accurate. I look forward to seeing how it develops over the next decade. Martin Foley, many thanks for the pleasure of your company this morning. Thank you, Richard.
Uh, there's a, an event coming up which I'm really quite intrigued by, that kind of fusing and, and blurring of boundaries and creative discipline, disciplines. Le Sacre is a collaboration uh, between the National Institute of Circus Arts, NICA, and the Australian Ballet School uh, and is running from the 14th to the 23rd of June at NICA's National Circus Centre in Paran. Joining us to tell us more are the show's co-directors, Sebastian Hunter and Simon Dow. Welcome, gentlemen. Welcome to you both. Hey, thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Great to be here. So I'm really intrigued to know how this collaboration began. I mean, Simon, you're resident choreographer at the Australian Ballet School. Sebastian, you're a performance coordinator at NICA. Where did this idea come from? How did the conversation between these institu- institutions begin? Uh, well, Simon and I were both serving as representatives for the Arts 8. So the eight elite uh, institutions Performing arts institutions. Which also uh, includes what? Whopper, uh, uh, the Flying Fruit Flies. Yes, yeah, so it's Naster uh, and, uh, and um, AYO. National. Yeah. AFTERS. Uh, NIDA. NIDA, yeah. Uh, we're having a, a conference. And so, as part of this conference, it was the first time that we'd all met together. And uh, that year, I worked on a collaboration between NICA and NIDA for a circus play that we put together and I was speaking to Simon while we were there and I was just saying I really love ballet, I really respect the form and I'm, I think the physicality of what they do could really connect with what we do and that I was really intrigued to start uh, the process of having a conversation on how we could make something together. Simon, what was your response to that? Kind of- I came away from that meeting hugely inspired and shifted in some way, on a creative level, and I, I, I thought, um, I'm, I'm always so interested in hybrid exploration of the arts across all disciplines, and I just found Zeb to be so um, energized and excited about collaborative work, and and I thought, how can we make this happen? It, it seemed virtually impossible at the time. It seemed like a great concept, um, and then Zeb approached me more recently and uh, we've actually brought it to fruition which i'm delighted to know because the both i can certainly see similarities between the art forms for example in terms of the dedicated training that circus artists and kind of uh, ballet dancers have to do to the re- to create the kind of rigor and skill and control that is necessary in the art form nonetheless they also exist in such different kind of realms at the same time. So what have been the challenges in bringing the art forms together? But conversely, what have been then the strengths that have developed as you've created the work? Uh, well, definitely from my perspective, some of the challenges have been more logistical in, in that uh, the ballet students have had these really full schedules. A lot of them are in the process of doing exams for their VCE at the same time that they've been working on other shows at the same time that they've been doing their classes at the same time that they've been working with us as well and on on our end it's it's really been that process of how you kind of construct and make a show when half the cast aren't there so it's it's been quite a quite an imaginative process for the students to think about how they can uh construct and choreograph a piece uh with half the cast missing, basically. Mm. Our first truly collaborative week uh, was back in, when was that? April. And um, it was really wonderful to see the students from the Australian Ballet School, their eyes wide open, um, just walking into the room and sort of merging with these 
slightly more mature age students from NICA. And, um, you know, just gradually over that week, the sharing and the collaboration became more and more open and relaxed and grounded. And we found that, that as you said earlier, this, this extraordinary discipline that they all carry mm. from their art form and their dedication to their work um, really matched beautifully and they were all open and they looked at what each other could do and there was this sort of great mm. um, play happening. Now, talk to us about the, the age ranges and what the students are learning from one another because I know that at the Australian Ballet School, for example, the, the full-time program is what students from 13 and up. So We have an eight-year full uh, elite training program so they graduate when they're roughly 19. Which um, is really about the age they're just going into NICA. Absolutely. So there's a real shift of balance there. It's been so informative and um, barrier breaking for our young students to be exposed to this type of process. And um, these young artists, it's a particular year group that are very open and receptive to begin with. Mm. But I've seen massive shifts in, in their um, in their work with us at the school. Um, as well as their contribution. They they feel more grounded. They're very open. Um, Some aspects of training a classical dancer can be quite narrow and and very directed and focused in a particular uh, direction. Um, I feel like this group are are really opening up. It's Mm. beautiful to see. And has there been a similar impact on the NICA students? Absolutely. I think from... I think in terms of of the discussion we were having, I think for ballet in that a lot of it is about figuring out how to become a chorus, how to how to have this this great degree of unison the the contrast of that within circus is that circus performers are trained to be soloists they're always trained to to specialize in their own disciplines to be by themselves and the the only time they actually get a chance to be with each other at school is when they're either in academic classes or when they're doing their dance or acting classes so i think for them the opportunity to see these these young uh talented uh vibrant artists that are so disciplined and are so strict with how they uh conduct themselves at times when when they're approaching their craft has been really inspiring for them especially because they they do a lot of the dance classes and ballet techniques themselves and then they'll they'll come and get to see the the ballet dancers doing them with uh the degree of precision which uh, happens when that's their their main form, uh, and that's that's been incredibly inspiring for them. And I, I, they've just loved the opportunity to to imagine a way of creating a work that combines different forms and that that attempts to and does actually put into val- value is beneficial for both forms. So the work that has then grown out of this process, uh, Le Sacre, which I know is kind of there's uh, uh, taken elements from the story of uh, Nijinsky, for example, who was the the subject of a ballet that the Australian Ballet presented not so long ago, Um, but also uh, elements of uh, Rite of Spring and more. What's been the the creative outcome? What can people expect? Because given from what you've you've both spoken about in terms of that kind of creative cross-fertilisation, I get the feeling we're not going to see ballet, circus, ballet, circus, ballet, circus in in a clear division of art forms. It's obviously going to be a much more integrated whole. 
And, and I think that the place where it really intersects is this uh, physical theatre, dance theatre realm. A lot of our circus students are quite physically able in terms of the acrobatics classes that they do at school. So they're really great at just throwing themselves into these devising and improvisational exercises we've used to construct the show. And Conversely, I mean, we've, we've had some great moments where the where the dancers have been doing skipping rope, for instance, and are actually jumping through the ropes and doing various uh, balletic choreographic movements, which has been fantastic. Uh, and some of the students are from Japan where they have had quite a, an amazing training in skipping rope and are really, really uh, fantastic. So that's been awesome. Yeah. And we've had them throwing themselves at each other, climbing on each other and uh, just exploring the form. And there is a real excitement, I think, from the ballet students to walk into the room and just to see these people hanging from everywhere and Absolutely. they all want to get involved. Yeah. We're also using some text in the show as well. And so for, for a dancer or, or perhaps even for a circus artist to use their voice in, a, in an art form that is traditionally seen as silent, and I think that's being reimagined constantly across the globe at the moment um it it's really stretching them and and showing them that there are no um implicit limitations other than those that you um apply to yourself in your process of discovery we're we're addressing some really contemporary themes through this piece Mm. um and and looking at the human condition and cycles of the human condition so it's it's material that we hope will be relevant and, and will really hit people strongly, both in the gut and in the heart. Mm. Le Sacre, a collaboration between NICA and the Australian Ballet School, is running from the 14th to the 23rd of June, with a preview on the 13th of June. 7.30pm nightly, Wednesdays to Saturdays, plus uh, 2pm matinee on the 23rd at the NICA National Circus Centre, 39 to 59 at Green Street, Paran. Runs for about two hours, including uh, an interval, and you can get ticket details uh, by jumping online and booking at nica.com.au that those dates again the 14th to the 23rd of june with a cheaper preview on the 13th of june le sacre a collaboration between nica and the australian ballet school as i said at the start of the conversation with sebastian hunter and simon dow i'm genuinely excited by this kind of cross fertilization uh, and inter- and blurring the boundaries between art forms because clearly everybody will benefit students and audiences alike so gentlemen thank you both for coming in thanks Ed. thank you this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.